welcome to the August edition of the Cinetopia Show. I'm Paul Bruce, director of the Edinburgh Short Film Festival, and with me is Amanda Rogers, co-founder of Cinetopia. Amanda, how's it going? Good. I've, um, it's festival season. I've been doing a lot mm -hmm. of filming for fringe shows and, uh, you know, doing as much as we can. Um, not going to as much cinemas as usual. <laughs> uh, so you're keeping busy? Yes, very busy. Good stuff. Uh, we're also joined by our Cinetopia regular, Jim Ross, manager of Take One Magazine. Hi, Jim. What's been happening this month? Uh, quite a lot, as Amanda said, it's festival season, uh, as you can, you might be able to hear behind me actually, um, but you know, a lot of film festivals going on, a lot of interesting films being released, so I've been very busy, and we'll be talking about some of them as ever on the show. That's good, glad to hear it. So with the Edinburgh Short Film Festival, we're very close now to announcing this year's programme, so we're very excited about uh, hopefully finalising those details fairly soon. Uh, we're also holding an open-air garden cinema event as part of Scalorama, which we'll be talking a little bit about later. The uh, garden cinema event is free open-air short films from around 6pm on Sunday, September the 1st. Um, and yes, uh, we'll be looking forward to welcoming you along to that as well. Hopefully there'll be cupcakes and potentially nice weather. So on this show, we'll be doing reviews of recent films out in theatres uh, in the UK this month, including Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, the supposed second-to-last film by Quentin Tarantino, as well as Pain and Glory by Pedro Almodovar and Joanna Hogg's The Souvenir. You may have noticed that the Fringe Festival is upon us, leaving less time for cinema events this month. Um, we'll be getting a head start on some of the many events that are happening next month in the month-long celebration of cinema in the UK, Scalarama. So Amanda here sat down with... Megan Mitchell and Sean Wells from Matchbox Cine Club to chat about their upcoming Weird Weekend Festival in Glasgow, as well as their coordination of Scalarama across Scotland. Then we'll do our first part of interviews uh, with film societies across Edinburgh who will be programming this films across Edinburgh for this year's Scalarama Festival. Amanda, you've been coordinating that. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, so we have a great... Um, uh, a, a great lineup of about, I think, 20 different um, events. Wow, uh, Cinetopia okay. itself is doing three events. Um, we're doing a, our monthly doc screening with um, co-curator with Serena Scateni, who we'll be interviewing later. And then we're doing Bend It Like Beckham with the Real Girl Film Club, which I think we'll be interviewing next month because we're doing the first half of the interviews um, in this month um, for our podcast. And then finally, we're doing Rocky Horror Picture Show. So that's going to be a really, really fun thing at Lee Theatre. Um, but yeah, there's there's a whole bunch of... Um, it, you know, The nice thing about Scalarama is that it's it's not just programmed by one um, festival. It's, it's a bunch of different film societies around um, each city, um, coming together, supporting each other, and um, the, the the thing is, is there's really amazing curatorial talent, just like you know, in all of these film societies. So it's really, really great um, opportunity to highlight all of that. And uh, like you said, you're you're doing um, our first launch event for Scalarama on the first, right? That's right. Yes, um, we did this last year, didn't we? I think uh, we were lucky enough to have quite nice weather and. Um quite well attended. It's at the top of Middle Meadow Walk. I'm sure we'll all be looking forward to that. Hopefully um, the rain will let off. <laughs> well, it was a really nice night that uh, last night, yeah. when, last time we did it. Um, but you, you have a new sort of uh, tent over as well? Or We're hoping for yeah, some form of protection from the elements, but uh, we'll We'll uh, hopefully um, have that up and running in time. Um, it might not need it, obviously. Uh, you can always be optimistic, you know. So, uh, yeah, well, Scalarama looks very exciting this year. There's a lot of, uh, especially um, quite a wide range of films, from Inland Sea to the Rocky Horror Show, uh, which will probably be, I imagine, very popular. Um, so that's going to be at the Lee Theatre, is it? Yeah, that's on the 27th of uh, September. So people will have to bring along their rice and... 
Well, yeah, you you can bring on your own props. Um, definitely yeah. your costumes, and um, but there will be props available for sale oh, too. How so. exciting! <laughs> right, very much looking forward to that then. Um, so finally, Jim Ross will be interviewing Mark Jenkin, the director of the new film Bait. <laughs> We're back, um, and we're also joined with our uh, friend Luca Vukos, who's going to help us with uh, the film reviews today. Luca, how are you doing? Not bad. Reveling in the fringe. <laughs> Great. Uh, so a long-awaited Quentin Tarantino film is back, and for one time we all got together and saw it together, which is which is exciting to go to the film theater together. On 35mm, no yeah, less. 35mm at Filmhouse. Um, it's currently playing Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. is playing at the Filmhouse and Cameo on 35mm, so that's super exciting. Uh, Luca, tell me a little bit about um, what the film's all about. So as Paul mentioned, this is um, Tarantino's ninth and allegedly penultimate film. Um, so I think he's got one more to go before he reaches his tenth mark. Also, just bone of contention, is not his ninth film. It's his tenth film. That Kill Bill was two films. I don't care what Quentin Tarantino says. Two films, two tickets, right. <laughs> um, so the film is set in the late 1960s, um, sort of at, at a point of transition in Hollywood between old and new, um, and it follows uh, Leonardo DiCaprio's character, Rick Dalton, uh, who is an actor, and his best buddy slash stuntman slash uh, gopher, um, Cliff Booth, uh, played by um, Brad Pitt, um, whilst in Tarantino, you know, Tarantino fashion, simultaneously following uh, Sharon Tate um, and her gallivanting around Hollywood, and then sort of, you know, counting down to uh, the Manson murders. I I have had an interesting relationship with Quentin. Um, I like he is a filmmaker that for a lot of people, particularly my age, and I assume with you guys as well, you watch him, you and you know, you learn a lot by his films and you learn a lot about other films, but eventually sort of, you get tired of QT. Um, and this is pretty much his like masturbatory playground of references and vinyl records and everything. Um, there is, this film, it, it, it's everything QT and that's gonna put off a lot of people but I liked it, um, especially in comparison to uh, like after The Hateful Eight, which was, um, upon reflection, a bit of a slog. Um, yeah. So uh, I think I think Lucas kind of hit the nail on the head there in terms of it being, you know, packed full of references. And it's I, I don't think you could possibly be in any doubt that Quentin Tarantino made this film. Um, Yes, maybe the, the dialogue's a little less kind of like snappy and quippy and witty than it was in his early work, but it's very much a Quentin Tarantino film. For me, it didn't really work quite as well. Um, now, I, I generally, I've been a big fan of Quentin Tarantino, and I think his initial run of three films, uh, you know, so Reservoir Dogs, Pulp Fiction, Jackie Brown also, I kind of credit that with getting me into film, to be perfectly honest, or at least thinking about it as something beyond, you know, something to pass the time. Since then, I've had a bit more of a mixed reaction to it, and I think he does collapse into self-indulgence very easily. Now, sometimes it works, because um, certainly Pulp Fiction is like that, and there are other films where that works. For me, it worked in Django Unchained. It also worked for me in The Hateful Eight. I, I really like The Hateful Eight, but there are also films where it really doesn't. Um, and the 
thing it reminds me the most of is actually Kill Bill Volume 1, which was very packed with references of um, sort of like East Asian action films, anime, and all this these things that he loved. And whilst it's quite good to see that passion on screen, for me, this was basically the equivalent, but for old Hollywood. Um, and there's plenty to like about the film, which I'm sure we're going to go talk about uh, shortly. But for me, it was just too meandering and that's not to do with the length crucially because as his films go it's actually kind of a standard sort of length for his films but for me it was very meandering and it didn't really coalesce into something which i think would resonate beyond people who also share that level of passion that tarantino does it didn't quite come together for me if i'm being honest yeah i i heard this film was fantastic and amazing and it can it was you know really really lauded and the performances, and I was not I was not expecting the film to kind of be so quiet. There's a some sort of quietness to it, or you know, like you said, meandering. And um, but I also think it is much a very much a love letter to LA, and I'm I'm quite it kind of fits within those genres of films like The Player, the Robert Altman film, and you know, just about old Hollywood and there is something really um, lovely about the way everything was shot and and that that you know that the performances and certainly you could see these actors Quentin Tarantino and um, as well as Quentin Tarantino and the the two actors I think Leonardo is a little bit younger but you know they're dealing with that kind of sort of age frame where they were really really big things you know a few years ago and now they're coming into that kind of thing so I think they they probably it was they were probably very um, method and <laughs> the way that they respond and, and it came across really really um, really wonderful for me so I, I did enjoy it I just didn't think maybe it was as funny as I expected it to be um, maybe a little bit more melancholic um, and uh, was was slightly a different tone but then by while I, while I sat through it I, I quite quite loved it so yeah it, it's very much Tantino lamenting the passing of an age um, now, without uh, kind of going into the, the trajectory the, the plot takes with, like, the Mansons, who are... who are th It's interesting that the film got... W when it was initially in development, there was a lot of talk about, oh, you know, Tantino's making a film about the Manson murders. This is very much not about the Manson murders. It's using the Manson murders as a, uh, a signpost, a, a waypoint, a milestone in the history of Hollywood to signify the passing of an age. He has very much used it to hang this um, fondness and nostalgia for old Hollywood upon it. And the two characters that we follow, Cliff Booth and Rick Dalton, so uh, Brad Pitt and Leonardo DiCaprio respectively, I think you've also got it correct there in that they are dealing with, are they relics? Are they dinosaurs? And is the industry and, you know, like culture in general moving on from them? There is a little bit of metaness to that, uh, particularly when you think about the way Tarantino himself has been regarded in recent years. I mean, certainly in the post-Weinstein world, I think a lot of people are questioning his conduct and behaviour. Uh, to me, it is very meandering. There's all these different bits to it, but it is too meandering. Now, he's done this with his films before, but they've kind of got an explicit chaptered structure. And I actually think this film would have worked better if he'd done that, because... The, the Rick Dalton storyline, the Cliff Booth storyline, and the Shannon Tate storyline, right, so Margot Robbie is Shannon Tate, they do all intersect. They are all related. I mean, like the, the conceit is that Rick Dalton lives next door to Shannon Tate uh, and Roman Polanski. But to all intents and purposes, they don't really overlap until the finale of the film. I mean, they, they intersect at points. It's exactly the same setup that he had in uh, 
Pulp Fiction. Separate characters, separate storylines, but they um, link together and coalesce into some sort of climactic finale. It's a similar thing going on here, but it's just too meandering. It's not punchy enough to bring you along with each segue. I agree. I think the the idea of characters finally intersecting at the end, for me, usually, like, if you look at um, Inglorious Bastards, I think um, that was a case of characters intersecting, but largely because of plot, because, like, characters had the same motivation. Here, it is super interesting that, without spoiling anything, the two parties of Sharon Tate, of old and new Hollywood, intersect, but it, it is interesting to have them be neighbors. Um, and there's a bit at the end that's you know, probably the most melancholic moment after a very specific sequence um, that's literally old Hollywood being accepted into the gates of, of new. At the same time, I think I, the me meandering thing is, it worked for me in a way that it hasn't for a Tarantino film before because there's a lot of sequences in this film of actors just lounging around because like in between takes and like you know there's an entire extended sequence that's you know with DiCaprio talking to a little um a girl that I think is based on Jodie Foster I, I think Tarantino has said and for me this entire film especially when we get into the final part of it and the, the fact that the title is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood it is to me it's like a it's like the pipe dream of an actor in downtime it's like it's 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 some imagined thing um that he sort of conjured up here, and like that's that the meandering works in that respect, because I think D DiCaprio said as well, this is like a day or two in the life of of these actors. But that's the thing, right? It's a day or two in the life of these actors. If he had a more disciplined focus, right, I really do think this film could have worked uh, fantastically, right? Because if you take any one of the individual strands, like so, so the the standout scene for me, and this the, the Manson Ranch, right, the Span movie ranch that they basically lived on. There's a scene where Brad Pitt um, finds himself at that ranch, right, and it's super tense. It's incredibly well shot, and it's a little bit like that that tension that Tantino brought to that very claustrophobic space in the opening scene of Inglorious Bastards, right, where uh, Hans Landa confronts the the French farmer who's you know hiding um, Jew, Jews underneath his floorboards. It's like he's taken the tension of that and he somehow extended it to this dusty, you know, yellow-lit California landscape. And it's really fantastically done. But the problem is, either side of this, you've got, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio acting, you've got Sharon Tate going to see herself at the cinema, and all these different bits, they all have their own really great bits to them. But it felt like somebody had taken a mini series and just thrown it to me. It felt like somebody had taken a mini series and thrown them all together. I don't really know what he's trying to say by telling these stories simultaneously. And it's this lamenting of an age where he just kind of wants to throw everything on screen. It felt like it was the first or second draft of the script made it up there. Well, I think again, I, I think it goes back to this idea of like, like you said, like a new time, like an old time meeting another time, and then we're right now we're in that maybe phase for him. You know, he's still filming on thirty five millimeter, and we're moving into the digital era and stuff. And I think this is like a lot of it was pulling stuff about Hollywood today that's still like a part of of their lives and reflecting on it and and th the oldness, the nostalgia that is still what L A is. It's a it's it's an homage 
to an old LA, but also a love letter to a city that's still thriving. To t well, to the point as well, uh, uh, as I was talking with Jim, um, when you look at the casting for the Manson family, you like a lot of a lot of them are uh, daughters primarily of famous people. So you have Margaret Qualley, right. who's Annie McDowell, Annie McDowell's daughter. You have um, I think Johnny Depp's daughter's in there, Kevin Smith's daughter's in there, and then uh, Ethan Hawke's and Uma Thurman's daughter's there, and they're sort of you know the villains. They're like the, they're they're it's weird. They're new Hollywood, but they're like demonic hippies. Uh, I don't know what Quentin is trying to say with that. <laughs> um, Who knows? Um, yeah. But. It is a Quentin Tarantino film, absolutely. So if you like Quentin Tarantino and you like Hollywood and you s if you're a cinephile of sorts, <laughs> as at least Luca is, um, I think this might be your film of the summer. And the next film we're going to be talking about is uh, Pedro Amaljavar's uh, Pain and Glory. Um, that also uh, premiered at Cannes this year. And I think um, Antonio Banderas won the award for Best Actor, correct? Um, yeah. Uh, so it's, uh, uh, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Jim, why don't you tell us a little bit about the film? Okay, so as you said, Pedro Amaldover, Um And it's a fairly... Uh, autobiographical thing. It's um, Antonio Banderas is playing a Spanish film director, Salvador Mayo, who is very obviously a version of Almodovar, uh, even up to the point where if you look at uh, the hairstyles that Antonio Banderas is given, it's that kind of like shock of, you know, standing up here that Almodovar is, is quite famous for. And basically, we, we, we pick up with this guy after he, he's not been making a film for a while. He's suffering from various physical and mental ailments, and he's kind of a bit of a, 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 bit of a shadow of him, his former self, really. Um, and we get this uh, montage early on of that. So we're following him in the present day. We get flashbacks to his uh, childhood uh, with his mother, played by Penelope Cruz. And it's really just following him reconnecting with various different things. And the, the instigating incident is a local cinema is doing a retrospective of one of his most uh, famous films, which was made 32 years ago. And they want him and the actor that he fell out with and b rather infamously had a falling out with on the, on the set and afterwards. And he hasn't spoken to him since the premiere of that film. It's basically, th that's the instigating incident, and that causes the, the film to follow him reminiscing on his life, uh, reconnecting with people from different segments of it, uh, also looking back on his art, and what is sparking life and creativity in him now. And, and basically, we are with him for the whole film, and we follow him through those different kind of events as across about a week or so, but there are frequent flashbacks to different parts of his life. Yeah. Um, and what did you think of it? I thought it was absolutely wonderful. Mm -hmm. I, I really liked it. Um, now, I, I, I've generally liked Pedro Almodovar's films. Um, ironically, I'm not terribly familiar with his stuff from pre-1990s, um, mm. which obviously plays into this. Cause, so the film, that the, the, the fictional film that Salvador Mayo directed that instigates this is, uh, I think, was it Sabor, was it called? Mm. Um, so I'm not really sure what, what film, if any, that would correspond to in Almodovar's filmography. But it was really wonderful, and it it, cont it contains all the sort of things that you would expect from Almodovar. Like there's fantastic use of color, like there's red, like you know, everywhere in here, and this extremely kind of like you know very precise 
set decoration and all the rest of it. I think what the difference here is, uh, now I haven't seen Julieta, I have been told a lot of people think it's very similar in the way it approaches its characters and story to that film, which I've not actually seen, but it's a very personal film. Um, it's very character-driven, and I think Antonio Banderas is wonderful in this. I, mean, I, I really am not surprised he won- he's he got a lot of plaudits for it. Um, I, I really actually think it might be one of the best performances from him I've seen, to be honest. Yeah, it was incredible. And we were talking about certain moments in the film. Again, another film about filmmaking and a film director kind of in in the later part of his career or, you know, or not, you know, a film, a, a film, yeah, filmmaker of some sort. Um, my favorite part was the moment where they're on, uh, there's the Q&A scene and they didn't arrive because of, you know, <laughs> what they were doing. <laughs> um, I'm trying not to spoilers <laughs> anymore, but and anyway, um, but, it, and they, you know, they were broadcast in there. It was quite, for someone who loves Q&A so much, it was, it was such a great great scene um and I, I completely agree with you i mean i i was a big big um pedro maldivar fan when i was younger and so um i and and this just reminded me of why i love his work so much it's so it's so stunning and the acting is such amazing it's really empathetic and you know you could really dislike this guy but i feel like there were so many really empathetic scenes you know when he f- meets his former lover again and you know there's so many great moments in this film incidentally when he meets his former lover again i've forgotten the name of the actor who plays him unfortunately but i think they would win the award for best silver fox couple <laughs> i mean an impossibly good looking pair of yeah. men quite frankly and making <laughs> out it was just like wow <laughs> yeah that, that that was one good looking couple but um but i the film overall is really great and i think what's quite interesting about it is it's not particularly telling a story i don't mm. think I, I mean obviously it's it's rooted in the story of salvador mayo or you know almodover by a different name it, it's rooted in the story of his life but it's, it's painted in little vignettes you know it's kind of it's almost like you've got different segments and they're like very you know you've interspersed with almost like short films covering his childhood even or something like that but by the end of it you have a really beautiful picture of this central character um played fantastically by antonio banderas and i think all the supporting characters around about him like his um his personal assistant come agent his mother um both the, the young version of his mother played by penelope cruz and the um the later version sort of like just before she she died i mean it's not really given that his mother dies at some point and it's all these things where it's painted as if he's coming to terms with them, right? You know, he's coming to terms with um, his own personal history, his mother's death, his physical ailments. But it's a, it, it comes out that way to begin with, but it's not actually that. It's more about reconnecting, you know. So he reconnects with his former lover. He gets a little bit of artistic inspiration again. Now, the catalyst for this is... You know, I, I think we'll, we'll go with it, right? Because it happens quite early on. Basically, like, heroin plays a role in this, right? And the journey he goes on with that and how it affects him is a very interesting one because you're used to watching films where, like, drugs are kind of like, you know, the start of a spiral. Right. But the thing, what what happens when you've got this person who's got the, the weight of everything that's happened to them before and the state they're in now, what happens then? When they when they already feel like they're at rock bottom, and it was an interesting and a different dynamic for that sort of um, plot than I've seen before. Right. The one thing I have to say, and I, I, this might really 
picky thing is that um, when they're showing sort of his ailments and his heart, like they sort of turn into some weird animation and it felt like a corporate video or something like that to me. I don't know why, but it just that you have all these really beautifully set scenes and then uh, like then it's kind of goes into that bit and then it just felt like it pulled me out a little bit. But that's also probably because I've done a lot of corporate videos in my life or something. I, I kind of agree with you on that bit, though. Like, fortunately, it's quite short, and so it, it, it did feel... Well, because the thing is, it, it starts off... The, the, like, the intro, like, right. the actual intro credits are absolutely it's beautiful. Stunning, yeah. You know, it's kind of like this effect of kind of, like, you know, marbled paper that's moving. Right. And, like, it's, it's really, really beautifully done. And then, very in very quick order, you got something where... Like, I mean, okay, it's not it's not completely lacking in artistic... You know, because, I mean, it's Pedro Almodovar that's done it, right? You know, there's lots of interesting stuff going on in it. But it is a little bit like Pedro Almodovar like directed a Nurofen com commercial yeah, for like totally. a really short period for some reason. <laughs> so that that bit I agree didn't didn't quite work. Fortunately, it moves on from it, and then I think what's strange about it actually is like that kind of visual aesthetic is never revisited for no, anything else exactly. in the film. It would be one thing if he came back to it for other stuff. Well, and I'm glad he didn't. <laughs> yeah, but but he doesn't. It's, yeah. a, it's a very standalone part. But that happened. It happens early, and it moves on from it. And from that, from then on, it's fantastically realized impeccable and I, I really loved it i really thought it was great yeah i think we're both in agreement and i think we're all unanimously agreeing to to, to that you guys should go see it definitely yeah Okay, uh, so the next one we're talking about is um, Joanna Hogg's latest film, uh, The Souvenir, which premiered at Sundance Film Festival earlier this year. It was also at the Edinburgh International Film Festival, and uh, we talked a little bit about it in the Take One special. Um, so also ask you, you can go back and see, there's about five other um, people who talked about their opinions on this, and I think we might have an interesting sort of debate. There was an interesting debate then, and there might be an interesting debate this time. Um, and it comes into theaters um, in the UK, August 30th. Uh, it is said to be a semi-autobiographical film about Hogg's own experience in film school. It's starring Honor Swinton Byrne, Tilda Swinton's daughter, Tom Burke, and Tilda Swinton herself. I love films with Tilda Swinton. <laughs> Maybe that's my problem. Um, the main character is Julie, played by Honor Swinton Byrne, a young, well-off young woman who is trying to make it and uh, um, trying to make a film attending film school and much of the film shares this process of working with uh what i th it seems to me somewhat pretentious film teachers um she's also coming from like this well-off background so there's a lot of um commentary about um elite people and you know their 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 their, their lives and and whatnot, but it's a, in a somewhat of an empathetic way. At some point, she meets an older man who works for the Foreign Office and is, who's played by Tom Burke. And it really, the film really eventually moves into this like story of a toxic relationship. And we can go into more detail about that, but that kind of takes her away from her um, film process. But I, th I find it interesting that the three films that we're, we uh, are talking about are about filmmakers. They're about you know filmmaking. Um, they're uh, some of them are about heroin. <laughs> So, um, but it's a, but it is interesting because this is coming from a like a, a the younger perspective of looking back on your life and when you were first starting and you know the inspirations and the trials that you did versus um, Pain and Glory, which is about kind of the end of your career. Um, but I really loved it. I mean, I got also this idea of shooting on film. You know, um, as she shot a lot of it on sixteen millimeter, I think, or so on, and then parts of it um, with a 
a 60 millimeter kind of lens or, or you know, a, a filter or something. Um, but I just thought it was really like like it was beautiful and i loved the soundtrack i loved um i loved the the acting in it and um i think like it it it's 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 not meandering but it's it's quiet and 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 quite stunning and i think i'll watch it again and and find more life and and i thought it was quite lovely how about you guys um i i i don't i i i, I liked it um I don't know how m like th th apparently yeah there apparently there is a, a sequel coming out and I don't know if I want to see it because I think this is right am, am I right um, well it says it says part two but I thought that was a joke is that not no joke? it's got a Wikipedia page oh. it's, it's happening yeah <laughs> okay. um, but um, I'm not sure I want to see that second film not because I didn't like this film but because like I think there's something complete about this film um, I thought. The, the format was interesting, the 16 mil. Um, my, the drawbacks that I felt, first of all, was I do think is like it has like the languid pace and air of a Merchant and Ivory film, which like, I mean, they're good films, but it's actually they're great to watch on a Sunday, but not during the week. Um, like, and I, I, th I think you're right about the, uh, the filmmaking classes. Like, the performances in this film are super interesting in... I hate to bring up his name, but in a Ken Loach kind of way, in the sense that they're so naturalistic to the yeah, point where absolutely. those filmmaking scenes, those sessions are really sometimes awkward. Um, but I, at the same time, um, yeah, performances are great. Tom Burke is great yet again at playing a twat. Um, <laughs> but um, time is really interesting in these films we've been watching. This film is a Victorian film set in the, like the late 70s early 80s yeah that's an interesting point um yeah. and like to the point where the framing is something like the souvenirs it's a, it's a reference to a little painting uh from the 1700s or something and then some of those shots if you guys remember of the main character sat sick uh in her bed that has like a golden frame right, it's like a throne yeah um and then and then the very fact that tilda swinton's in it like that's yeah that's a victorian film <laughs> um but i think um I mean, yeah, that's that's what I initially thought, and I think the narrative structure is super interesting. I mean, like, um, particularly with Tom Burke's character, um, the the conversations usually are like in that wide sort of shot, like uh, hardly any close-ups, except when people are sort of connecting through touch, and it's like a miracle. It's like when the people are touching each other, just like these really grainy, noisy shots of like their hands and stuff like that. Um, but then the way it treats its characters is still detached, and like the like you know. Not to spoil anything, but Tom Burke's fate is, as Tilda Swinton says, the worst. He he sort of like really goes down that heroin road. Mm -hmm. But um, the way his character is dealt with is like it's like he's in the film, and a lot of the shots are of the back of his head. But then like he slowly like dissipates from the narrative. Um, but he sort of just disappears from the story, and that's his end. And I I thought I thought that was interesting. Yeah, he disappears from the story, much like my interest in the story. <laughs> Um, so, <laughs> first off, like, let's get the, let's, because honestly, I, 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 I'm going to try and keep it short, because the, the special we did during the festival, I rambled on about this film <laughs> then, and I'm going to try and not subject you all to it again. First things first, the performances are great. It's a beautifully made film. Um, you can tell that um, Hogg is a filmmaker who has a clarity of vision, 
and the way that she wants to present her characters is very deliberate and it tells a story quite well that 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 i'm not you know any criticism i have of it don't let that detract from it however the the backdrop to this story is just so impossibly dripping with privilege that it becomes incredibly distracting now the film wants to deal with this right it has in particular so basically the the film that honor swintonburn's character is trying to make is is basically a sort of an allegorical biography set in sunderland right uh, an area of the country that she admits she doesn't know much about and naturally she gets questioned about how she's going to make this film and when she tries to express uh, what the film means to her how she's going to make about it you know at parties in her swanky knightsbridge apartment which we'll come back to um she can't do so, right? And that's an interesting aspect, this, ab- this lack of ability to express yourself. However, it doesn't really... The, the, the privilege which seems to prevent her from making the film, right, because she can, maybe can't relate to it, it doesn't really do anything with it. And when you then bring in um, the... I think Anthony is the name of the, the, the character... It then starts to go, in my, in my view, some slightly weird places with how they present that relationship, right? Because it then takes this relationship, which develops into a toxic one. It starts off maybe, you know, a little bit of like the, you know, mansplaining, as we call it. It starts off a little bit with that. And then it develops into something which is uh, a lot more troubling. And it's almost like by the time we get to the end of the film... This is like the creative impetus. It is awoken the artist in her, and she can express herself. And I, I, I really have a problem with that that arc. I have a problem with that message, and it it drops in references to the privileged position of this character, but it's not to me. It's not commentary. It's like trying to address it because they know that people like me <laughs> are going to have a massive issue with it. The one that sticks out, sticks out is you know somebody says oh, well, maybe you don't need to worry about budget in Knightsbridge when she's trying to kind of like figure out how she's going to fund this film. But to me, it feels like it's paying lip service to it. It doesn't feel like a commentary to me. It's backdrop that are kind of like, okay, we've seen this, we've acknowledged it, but now we're going to move on. See, I disagree. And I think be- like I think about the difference between Sofia Coppola, who makes these films about rich elites all the time, and how c- I, I'm, I'm the number one critic of Sofia Coppola, and how not aware she is of you know her privilege and where this has this kind of sense of awareness to it and i think there it's it's deep in every single moment of this film um you know the trips to venice and and sort of this um borrowing of money and and these little kind of in the throne and like the 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 pro like the the you know the actual like art direction of this film has privilege all around it, um, but it also has it sort of in this empathetic way, which I think Hogg is known for. Um, and in, in a lot of ways, it it, it 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 was a very important part, I think. I, I don't think it was just thrown thrown in. To me, I, I didn't think so at all. And I actually think it was quite quite well handled. Well, I, I, I think, like, d- Jim, you're right to a certain extent. I, I would agree to a certain extent, like, um, at the beginning, that there is literally a character who says, ooh, that smacks of privilege. Um, well, I and I immediately, for at least for that segment of the film, I just I, I don't want to spend any more. I don't want to spend two hours in the company of these people. But I think the problem with the film in that regard is the fact that people are signposting all this 
through dialogue that people are literally it's not just naturalistic it's literally saying this is the plot by the way like the filmmakers are saying it's like why don't you just deal with stuff that you know this is all stuff that the film can tell visually um i think like the the, the beauty of the arc is that it is someone that is way over her, like in over her head and like it's like i'm gonna make a film about a working class person like in sunderland when in fact she's living a life you know, uh, Amanda, earlier you said like that, you know, like she has this relationship um, and it sort of makes her, you know, for at least six months, it sort of affects her filmmaking and she's not attending class anymore. But it ultimately, it ends up affecting her filmmaking in a very positive way. Um, despite the strife and struggle with, with Tom Burke's character, she finds the story to tell, um, you know. Yeah, this is, and, and I'm not, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, go on too long on this right because I, I could and i'm trying not to that's kind of my problem with this it's art it's another portrait of to create true art you must suffer and i've seen this story so many times and no matter how well acted this version is of it no matter how well shot this version is of it it is that story and i haven't i i have an issue with that story but even then it to me it doesn't actually fully grapple with it in a meaningful way to me well, and I don't, but I think of when you're saying this idea of discussion and the, the part of what I enjoyed about the film was the d annoying discussion. And I'll, t I'll tell you, I love the scene, and maybe this isn't reason, I love the scene with Richard Ayoade, yeah. who is, you know, talking about film school and why is it necessary and, you know, and it sort of explains the heroin problem that, you know, like that's in her relationship. Um, it, it, it it clarifies those kinds of things that like and that's the point it's this it's a discussion about filmmaking which is so pretentious but that is who we are you know as filmmakers and i think like it becomes we're talking right here about filmmaking over and over and over again and i think there it's calling into question that and kind of making light of that it's also making light of of it's not making light of it it's making the fact that you know it that these people who are privileged have those kinds of privileged problems and it's mm. discussing it it's not it's you know but, it's but i think i think like some of those dialogue scenes could have been cut a little bit because like if you can i wish they i hope they're not but but if, if you look at it in contrast those dialogue scenes to for example if you guys remember the shot when her parents are over in the flat and there's a beautiful shot of her father's you know sitting at the table with one of those mirrors sort of cracked that's 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 telling a story right there and the film knows how to do that and it knows how to use silence um it's just that for me if there's yeah, one detraction that film is lost in translation there's very little conversation in that where like you have all these like lyrical shots and stuff and i don't think that's this film i think this film is people in in conversation over their you know issues of filmmaking which is slightly silly that that's fair i just think they should have been just like it, i mean this is not quentin tarantino overindulgence i just thought like you know just calm it down no i mean it's still i mean it's still overindulgence it's just of a different <laughs> flavor um th the thing is i i as i've said earlier this this show right this is what i always seem to come down to with this i would encourage people to see it right because i've seen so many different reactions to this i think one of mine is one of the the strongest against it I've come across. Uh, you know, I saw it at a press screening at the film festival and I heard people around me talking about it. Honest to God, I thought I'd watch a different film. Um, but what I will say is it's a very well-made film, right? I, I cannot, for all the issues I might have with the narrative and the way some of the characters are presented, I cannot fault um, 
the filmmaking itself. I can't fault the performances and how genuine they come across in trying to paint the characters that they are. So th- there is a th- there is a very sincere aspect to this film, which I think is worth seeing for that. My issue is just my reaction to it, it in some ways when it drops in these things related to the privilege of the people there. I'd actually in some ways preferred it hadn't done that. Because if it was a story of privileged people with their, you know, very, you know, upper class British problems and, you know, related to, in her case, her filmmaking career, that's fine. I mean, you know, know, these people exist, they have problems, and I'm not saying those stories shouldn't be told. My issue is it feels like it's trying to address concerns which it didn't need to, and in doing so, it acknowledges they're there, and then doesn't do anything with them. That that's really my my issue with it. The film itself, though, is impeccably made. There there is plenty to recommend the film. My issue is just I found the backdrop to the story, and how it acknowledges that backdrop, but then doesn't really grapple with it or deal with it as I would have liked. And you know, I mean, that's tough luck. I didn't make the film. It doesn't. You know, it's not a film made for me. That to me, I then just find it incredibly distracting from then engaging with the characters in the way that I think I was supposed to. Yeah. Well, I disagree, but, you know, I've, I've said what I've said. I, I agree with you, Luca, that I feel like that Victorianness of this film and the way that it was shot um, is just quite lovely. I can't wait to see it again. Um, give it some time. And give part it, two. Give it maybe part two. I, I, I really thought that was a joke. No, 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 it is, it, it, it's up on IMDb. <laughs> that, was a, that was my weird part, it, where I was like, what, part two? Yeah. Like, what are you, back to the future? Yeah, no, it's, <laughs> a, it's, in, it's in post-production, apparently. Oh, yeah. okay, all yeah. right, well, so I guess there's a lot more to talk about privilege then. Um, well, a- anyway, so um, y- you see we have multiple opinions on this, um, and uh, choose for yourself. So I sat down to speak with uh, Mark Jenkin over Skype about his new film, Bait, which is coming out on August 30th. It's actually coming to Edinburgh a little bit before then. It's going to be at the Film House on the 27th with a Q&A from him. Uh, it's a very unique film, uh, shot on 16mm without any sound. He dubs it in afterwards. He hand-developed the film. It premiered at Berlin, and it's a very interesting film, uh, so I think he was a good director to speak to. So we'll go into the interview now, and I started off by just asking him to tell us a little bit more about the plot of the film and how he came to make the story. First of all, congratulations on the film. Uh, I thought it was absolutely fantastic. I saw it back at the Edinburgh Film Festival. Ah, brilliant. Thank you. So I think j- just for folk who, who haven't seen it, because obviously we'll be broadcasting this uh, just before it comes to the Edinburgh Film House, can you tell us just a little bit more about the film and the, the story of it to kind of set the, the scene for how you then approached it? Yeah, I mean, it, it's funny talking about the story now and the, and the themes that are involved in the film, because I've been out at festivals so much with it and doing a lot of Q&As and that kind of thing that I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a bit lost as to what I think the film is about and what other people have told me they think it's about. So, it, it, I mean, it, it, in some ways it's a film about fishing. In some ways it's a film about Cornish traditional cove fishing. In other ways it's about gentrification. Um, it's about 
class, it's about alienation. Um, and in the context of, of the moment, it, it seems to be more and more um, considered a film about what happens when people who who, who don't feel they're listened to, um, for whatever reason, decide to kind of kick back. That seems to be the modern the modern context. But when I came up with the idea 20 years ago, it was really at the height of the summer in Cornwall, where Cornwall was really um, was really busy with a with a very the bit of Cornwall that I was living in North Cornwall. It was very busy with a very specific set of visitors who were quite young people um, who were mostly private school educated who came down on mass in their groups uh, from from their schools and were really. Um, a, a, a stronger community than the local community that had become very fractured due to the decline of traditional industries. And then what then what actually happened was over the years, you, you then got other groups from other schools who were coming down and there sort of seemed to be this sort of antagonism between the school groups. And this ended up with, you know, huge fights and disturbances in, in North Cornwall. Um, and this was kind of probably 15 years ago by, by the time I'd been developing the film for five years. And I just got interested in where the sort of locals were in all of this, and so I decided to I wanted to make a film about a fisherman, and it could have it could have been about anything, it could have been about a, you know, a farmer or or any kind of traditional um, per, per person working in a traditional industry. But I, I really wanted to make a film about the fishing community as well, because it's a community that I've always grown up around, and a community that I think has always been badly represented on screen and simplified and. There's, there's there's stereotypes that are, are, that that have lived long regarding the fishing industry when actually they're all nonsense. So I think it was a combination of of all of those factors, and then in during the twenty years that the project has been developed, and I haven't been working on it constantly for twenty years, but yeah, you know, I've picked it up several times times over the years. It it's it's changed into something else really, but the 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 heart of it is still wanting to to show the fishing community but also just show that what what happens when you when a community becomes alienated disenfranchised and and that kind of thing and and i think to some extent the success of the film is is has been due to a bit of luck with regard to timing and what's going on in this country but all over the world in time in terms of the the, the gaps between the haves and the have nots growing yeah, there was something I wanted to ask you about actually because I, I I've noticed it's become mainly because of something that was in, it seems to have been inserted in the sound edit, um, quite a strong Brexit parallel with this. But I was wondering what your view was on this because I, I I have to be I have to be honest I I I really like the film but that part or at least it being as explicit as that kind of um, slipped past me as I was watching the film. It felt a lot more rooted to me in, in the characters and so forth. So what do you make of, 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 well, first of all, you can maybe explain like how that's actually happened, but what were your feelings on that when that, that analysis kind of started to take off about the film? Um, it was a surprise. It was a huge surprise. What, what happened was that, um, when just we were just about to complete the film and, and we were in the final stages of the sound mix and there's scenes in the kitchen of this holiday home with the with the sort of lead um incomer family and there was a scene where there was 
there was dialogue between characters, but it was very fragmented, and I became very aware that there was a silence over the scene that became much more that made the scene more, much more ominous than it needed to be. So I thought we need a little bit, little bit of background noise in the kitchen. So I thought they'd probably be listening to the radio. They'd probably be listening to Radio Four. Radio would be on in the background all the, all the time. So I thought we can just fix this in the mix. We can just go um, and record a little bit of Radio Four style. Um, sound to go in the background. So uh, Kate Byers, who's one of the producers of the of the film, is um, a voiceover artist and a, and was an actor. Uh, so I just got her to to write a little piece, a little Radio Four, not a news report, but a kind of current affairs thing. And she she wrote it very quickly. Uh, went into the voiceover booth and we just recorded it straight onto the soundtrack and. It was about Brexit, so it was a discussion between. It was actually um, Lynn Waite, who's the other producer on the film. She 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 played the other character within within this kind of current affairs report, and it's them discussing Brexit and 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 what may or may not happen. And I thought nothing of it. I mean, I don't I can't even remember whether we discussed whether it would be about Brexit. I think it was just it was just unsaid because you know what it's like at the moment. Um, I mean, we seem to be on a, sli a little bit of a hiatus from it at the moment, maybe because of the summer, but you switch on the radio or the TV and it's all been Brexit. So it's not something I even really hear anymore. It's just white noise in the background. And that's what I really wanted it to be in that scene. So that was recorded. It was dropped in. I didn't really think anything of it. I mean, I did slide it slightly on the timeline so that a shot of some fresh fish being handed over... Um, in the visuals then married up with the sound of them talking about imported chlorine washed chicken from the USA because I just thought oh, that was you know there's a nice little bit of juxtaposition but it was never meant to be a statement on Brexit one way or another and I didn't think anybody would notice it but what then happened was we went to Berlin for the world premiere and the German subtitlers um, because, as I say, this was quite a fractured scene with quite a lot of silence where the characters weren't talking, in that silence was this radio report and the German subtitlers subtitled the radio report. So suddenly this Brexit stuff that was being spoken in the background that I didn't even really notice was suddenly at the foreground. So one of the first questions in the Q&A at the world premiere was a question about Brexit. So I thought, right, this is, you know, <laughs> it's a tricky enough topic. It's a, it's a really tricky topic you know if you're from a fishing community um there's a it, it, it tensions run incredibly high about it and so i thought oh my god i'm you know here i am going to be the unofficial spokesperson for for brexit at, at berlin but it wasn't you know it was never meant to be foreground it was always meant to be background but it was interesting because then people did start to read in you know is the whole film an allegory for for Brexit and if they see it as that then of course it is but it, it was never my intention for it to be that and I think you saying that it may be passed you by is probably because I think the English speaking uh, audiences and the, and the non-subtitled screenings I think it does operate as a background noise and it's the subtitles that bring it to the foreground so also uh, I think having travelled around Europe with the film I think people <laughs> in Europe my experience are keener to talk about Brexit than than we are really <laughs> so I think it's more it, they want to know what's going on so as soon as there's a little signifier in there about Brexit that people seem to hook onto that whereas I think certainly from my point of view I recoil from it if I see signifiers about Brexit because it's all it's all a bit too grim at the moment I want to talk to you a little bit about the um the technical approach you've taken as well because obviously that's that's quite a striking thing about the film yeah 
one one thing I w- was wondering about is quite a lot of filmmakers speak about how um, creativity comes out of restriction, yeah. effectively. Um, you know, you can have people with enormous budgets and it feels like they can do anything but it's almost like they're paralyzed by choice um is that something that you were consciously look for in the approach that you've you've taken with the um the hand developed film and no sound is shot on location and things like that is it looking for a restriction which makes you think creatively about how you can capture the story you want within that yes exactly it's it's about realizing that I can't compete in terms of resources and budget. So it's not a level playing field. You know, we can't. If you're working on a low budget, you cannot compete with multi-million pound films with huge, huge crews and huge resources. So in one way, you think you know that the odds are stacked against us. But where the level field, where the where the playing field is absolutely level, is in terms of access to your own creativity or you know your own creativity everybody's got that in one way or another um the, what the limitations allow you to do is go is just to force to think creatively straight away so we're getting ready to shoot another film in the spring and it's getting to the point where i've redrafted the script several times now i need to lock down locations and i won't be able to get the locations that i'm imagining in my head because they're imaginary they don't actually exist so i need those locations that the film's set going to be set on an island we're not going to film it on an island and it's mostly set around a cottage on an island we need to find that cottage when i at the moment the idea in my head is that it's a cottage that's on an island and i've got 360 degree shooting what straight away it's not going to be on an island because, like I say, we're not going to shoot it on an island. Secondly, we're not going to be able to shoot 360 degrees because there'll be something in the background that gives it away that it's not the right location. So suddenly I'll go right. Okay, I've got an, I can I've got a 90 degree angle to shoot this with. I've got a, a very small angle that I can shoot this with. So then I rewrite the script based on just using the front of the house, for example. What then happens is that when the film's done, what's happened with bait is this kind of like the formalism that a lot of people have commented on. And the rigour, that isn't set out beforehand. That's dictated to me through schedule, budget, locations. Um, and that completely informs <clears throat> the way that the film looks. And then I, and then I kind of embrace that. And, and, and then that becomes, you know, that becomes the film because then the film exists as an object. And, you know, and, and then, and then it's, it's as if it was always meant to be that way, but it, but it isn't. I think it's, very disempowering to have complete freedom complete artistic freedom because you are kind of blinded by choices and you never do anything because you're always thinking well there's a better thing that could come along but if you're told or you or you tell yourself this is all you've got then you just get on with it and you know working under restrictions is the sort of sad truth that you look at great cinema you it's always important to look at what restrictions it was made under. You know, if you look, I mean, I just listened to a podcast about Tarkovsky's Stalker the the other day, and just thinking about somebody like Tarkovsky, the the restrictions that they would have to work under, creative, artistic, logistic, and the amazing art that comes out of that. So yeah, the restrictions are hugely important. And in fact, on bait, we lost some money not that long before we were going to shoot the film. 
and uh, the producers and myself had a conversation and we've realised we had to lose something from from the script because we couldn't afford to shoot everything that was on the page having lost this chunk of money. And originally the, the, the two brothers in the, in the film were at war, um, but they both had fishing boats and the younger brother had a smaller boat than the, than the older brother. Oh, okay. But a lot of the confrontation between the two brothers happened at sea between two boats. And so the obvious thing to, to lose when we lost some of the budget was to cut one of the boats. So we cut the, the younger brother's boat, which meant that then there had to be a rewrite. And the rewrite I came up with was that he would instead, hand he was, yeah, he was shooting a net off the beach. Now that was, I wouldn't have thought of that, it, but I had to think creatively and that becomes really the for me and for a lot of the response I've had to the film that becomes such an iconic um, piece of action and piece of work. This sort of desperate guy who's a fisherman that hasn't got a boat. I wouldn't have written that in the script unless I'd been forced to 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 to, to come up with a solution to that boat issue. Yeah, it's interesting that you you say that because it 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 really does add quite a very striking contrast to the the situations you know he he's still going in there with his hands and trying to get it done yeah um while there's you know these tourists and holiday makers basically you know gallivanting around on what would have been his boat yeah yeah and, <laughs> yeah. and, and also you know you, you then then the fact that the um the the, the hugo character the, the the holiday maker guy who who goes spearfishing he's then on a mm. the, the martin the young the younger brother fisherman is then on a parallel with this leisure hobby holiday maker fisherman who's actually got better gear than he's got. So then all of this other sort of subtext and uh, juxtaposition comes out of it, which again, would I would never have written in the script because I'm not that good a writer. The one other thing I want to ask you about in terms of the um, the story mm. is just whether it was informed by your own experiences of how certain communities are portrayed on screen because something i found quite interesting was like we follow um edward roll as uh martin yeah and we, everybody were following that they're, they're locals um it's a reasonably um sort of rural in the sense of being seaside uh community yeah but what was interesting about it was that we are following the people of that community it's not being used as uh, an awakening, if you like, for some sort of a uh, privileged urbanite, which, which is something that happens quite a bit. Yeah. And I was wondering if that played into how you came up with the story and what the focus of it actually was. Yeah, completely. I want I, I wanted to redress the balance a little bit. Cornwall, and I talk about Cornwall because it's the it's where I'm living and working and where I'm from and the place I understand. And I'm sure it's similar in other regions all over the world, but. Cornwall's used as a background, a backdrop for other people's stories all over, uh, all the time. And like you say, I, I like the that you said awakening story. It's exactly it, isn't it? It's somebody who, it's normally somebody from the city, who kind of thinks they're they're happy, ends up in a rural environment through some sort of misadventure, misadventure normally, and then but through an interaction with the simple, the simple indigenous yeah. folk. They learn a life lesson, which then they can take back to their other life, and you know, and yeah. and there's no. I mean, I hate the expression um, character arc, but but there's but the the locals ne they never have any sort of narrative journey. They're just background. They're just devices to 
to um, help the more sophisticated character refine their existence. Yeah, it's a it's a str- almost like kind of a, a a strange, slightly banal form of like exoticism. It, yeah, yeah, it it is, and you know, and that character, you know, that, that the character never really. The character who never come, who comes into that community, sort of takes the takes the good stuff and goes and goes away. You know, like community spirit or um, collectivism or whatever it is that they learn in a rural environment. But they, but you know, they don't have to. They don't then stay and sort of you know live through the winter or the poverty or anything like that. So it's all a it's all a bit it's all a bit sickening, really. So it, yeah. it, it was yeah, it was about redressing that and actually showing that the people who live in a place like Cornwall whether they're Cornish or not you know that what they do to get along and how people live and you know the the the, the good side of it and the bad side of it and you know just to bring that texture to the foreground rather than it being a background because it, it is very rare that people do that and uh, there are exe- there are exceptions I mean I would say like a film like Local Hero is kind of a, a film that really does nail that mostly because of the ending that, and that seems to be, mm. um, you know, the, that final shot where there is a. I, I always think that's a little bit of a, a little bit of a, uh, a reference to the films where everything is fine once that once the protagonist goes back to their urban life, yeah. you know. But and and something like Local Hero, which is so sophisticated and got and so dripping with humanity for all the characters, it really nails that. But that's a very rare example of of this type of film yeah, working. It's... It, it it it's funny you say that actually. Local local hero is probably one of my um, one of my personal favorites. But that is one of the things that I quite like about it. It has this, uh, you know, if you t- strip the story down to its bare bones, it's um is quite archetypal in that manner. But the the manner in which it's handled mm. um is just so much more empathetic and intelligent than I think you often find. And yeah. I find that in in bait, obviously, from a different, you know, different uh, focus, perhaps. Uh, right. oh, great. That, that was definitely there. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, with Local Hero, first time I saw it, I, d- I didn't get it at all. I'd heard so much about it and I watched it. And then at the end, I was like, I don't get it. Who was I? T- who am I supposed to? Whose side <laughs> am I on? And, and, and that's and then it stays with you. And then I was thinking, oh, yeah, that's the point, isn't it? You, you, can, you can kind mm. of empathize with everybody and and nobody and that, and yeah. that's life really isn't it it's not as simple as it is in the movies so if that although i'm not interested in realism or naturalism i think that kind of empathy for people who maybe you haven't got a lot of lot in common with is is really interesting in cinema so you were here in edinburgh for the edinburgh film festival and you're coming back uh on the 27th of july i believe it is. yeah that's right yeah yeah I, what what i was wondering was are you hoping because there is a lot about um you know, tourists coming into a community, kind of changing the character of it, maybe short term, and the impact that has on people's lives. It's actually a discussion which is happening in Edinburgh quite strongly. I was wondering, are you hoping that there's maybe a bit of resonance with the local audience on that level? Because uh, I, I don't know if it would have come up during the fest, the the film festival, mm. but certainly when you come when you come back with it um, this month, it's going to be immediately after the Fringe Festival yeah. and the International Festivals has finished. I was wondering if you'd thought about that at all. I have thought about it a little bit, and I, I mean, I've thought about it in reference to Cornwall more in, in terms of when we're, the film's being released. So, I mean, because t- today's the 16th of August, we've got our first... Cornish preview tonight and then I'm I've got sort of five dates in Cornwall and then the film's out on the 30th of August and I wonder why whether by the end of August the film's going to be riding this kind of populist wave of <laughs> of sort of <laughs> end of the summer 
bring on September and the quiet months sort of sentiment within Cornwall. <laughs> um, so yeah, maybe it'll be the same in Edinburgh. I'm, yeah, it's 27th of August, so it's kind of just as the the festivals finished. So may you know, who can tell? What what I have learned is that it's not a film. Bait isn't a film about Cornish fishermen and holiday makers who who visit Cornwall. It's something that's much more universal than that. And yeah. and I think probably that's what I was hoping it was. But having gone to gone out around the world with it, it you know, everywhere I I go, there's a there's communities that that feel that they haven't got a stake in their own future and I mean when we were in New York with the North American premiere at um, the Walter Reed at Lincoln Center and this woman came up to me at the end of the film and said um, she said thank you you've made a film about my dad and he was a fisherman all of his life in Barbados and it mm. was you know the sim similar similar story and I and I think I never realized that maybe the film was as universal uh, as as it appears to be, because I, I think the sad truth is there are there, there is um, probably a lack of discussion about the way communities are being and and um, you know and cities and rural areas and whatever are being changed. You know who who's making these decisions to to change places in a specific way, and and who are the people who are losing out in that, and who are the people who aren't who haven't got a voice. So. Yeah, I mean it'll be in, it, it will be interesting to see. There's some dates on the on the preview tour that I'm doing that I'm thinking maybe you know is that going to resonate there? You know is that you know and, and normally places where that I'm sort of I'm normally quite surprised in those places that, that there is um, some kind of similarity with what's going on in a Cornish fishing village and and and, it, and in the centre of what appears to be quite an affluent urban area. So um, maybe that will be the same for. Edinburgh. I mean, also the thing with I'm quite interested in in the Scottish um, independence issue as well as I am with the with the um, with the Catalans. So whether you know what what people kind of read into that with regard to the to the Cornish issue as well, and where, and how well known that is. Although it's not addressed in the film, it's kind of I think it's there subtextually. So yeah, it'd be interesting to see see what um, a, lo a sort of local Edinburgh audience make of it rather than a, than a largely visiting festival audience. You're clearly a filmmaker who's very invested in the process of making the film and what that can bring to the, the storytelling and how it harmonises with the, the look of the film to actually really kind of heighten the impact of it. And there's a lot of films now where there's limited screenings of it and they tend to be quite big films uh, I mean in terms of stuff that's coming out at a similar time to this Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is getting 35mm screenings um, there's films in recent years where they get limited runs on 70mm which is happening less and less mm. I suppose I, I'm, I, I suppose I'm really just looking for what your views are on those sort of screenings do you see that as a a preservation of a way of creating a story or do you think that maybe it's being approached in a slightly gimmicky fashion in some cases or if or if it's maybe a bit of both depending on the filmmaker yeah it's a good question and i think it is i mean it, as far as what 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 i'm doing with bait and how we're um exhibiting it which is sometimes digitally and sometimes 
the 35 mil print, I think it's difficult to say because that would be more to do with the perception of um, from other people. But the way I the way I look at it is, um, the, at the moment, anything to get people into theatres, I think, is to be encouraged. I think it seems like the cinematic experience in in some ways is becoming more of a more in line with like a th a theater experience where you you pay a premium and you go for a meal at the at the cinema and you know and it becomes a real evening out rather than it being a normal kind of um a, a more sort of populist art form and I suppose with my film, I was always thinking that would be the area that we would be in, you know, the very the very art house circuit I thought we'd be in. But I think for whatever reason, and, um, you know, I don't, don't know, maybe it's just down to making a good film. Maybe it's to do with the story. Maybe, it, you know, who can tell? I, don't, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't like to say, but there seems to be a little bit of crossover that we've that we're enjoying where where we may well just be in some cinemas where it's just the film and it's projected digitally and the ticket price isn't extortionately expensive and all of that kind of stuff so i think i suppose from looking at it in the sort of eye of the storm that i'm in at the moment any anything to get people into theaters get people away from um, well not away from home streaming and all that because it's that's all great but just getting people to experience that um that theatrical experience and i think to continue it's something worth continuing and preserving and getting people in to see yeah and i mean you know my partner's boy who's 11 he watches movies and he watches a huge amount of movies and he watches them at home and he watches them in the cinema and i think he knows that there's a huge difference between going and watching something in a theater and watching something at home and I think that gives me a lot of hope for the future of the form, whether he's in a huge minority. But he doesn't seem to be by the amount of kids who still go to go to cinema screenings. So, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not I'm not massively precious about how films are seen because how my films are seen, because I, I make films in an analogue world and I like the craft element of it. I consider myself a working person who's come from a working background. So physically making a film is really important for me not as a statement particularly but just because that's the type of person i am so stood up using my hands using photochemical processes using a manual camera you know shooting it myself cutting it myself all of that kind of stuff like that's that's really important for me whether that's imbued within the final work that's for others that's for others to say but i don't make the work in in the way that i make it as a statement i just make it because that's what excites me when i go to bed on a sunday night it's the sort of working on film like that that makes me excited to get up on Monday morning. So I'm not really thinking about anything other than my own enjoyment at that, at that point. But I do understand that the large proportion of my audience are in a digital world. So although I make the films in an analogue way, I'm quite happy for them to go into a, a digital world and be consumed in whatever way an audience wants to consume them. Obviously sitting as we did the other day at the in NFT one at the BFI in London and watching a thirty five mil print in a five hundred seat auditorium <laughs> that that's obviously a, a high point but I don't you know I'm not expecting that to happen in every single town and, and city 
in in the country but but you know like i say may, maybe my aspiration for the film was to get on a, a handful of screens is you know it, it seems to be we're going beyond that so to to think that it would be, it would be screening on a dcp in lots of screens that i mean i'm i'd be very happy with that the fact of the matter is if you want to get films out to people and you know have people making films as well then I don't think cinema has the luxury of being precious about it. No, absolutely, and I and I and I think, and you can't have it two ways, really. I mean, I, I I'm in a position. I'd say I'm in a in a privileged position, but I've kind of, I I don't know how privileged it is, really, because I still work on tiny budgets. But I am in a position where I shoot on film. Um, but like I say, I'm I, the the digital distribution has been incredible. We've got a we've got a. a, a a cinema in Newlyn, which is the fishing village I live just up the hill from, mm. we've got a two-screen digital cinema. Now that wouldn't exist if the, if digital distribution didn't exist. And yeah. I'd quite happily watch something that's been shot on film um, and projected by DCP. You know, I'm not. Mm -hmm. You know, not, the 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 kind of cheaper the running costs of these cinemas, the hopefully the lower the ticket prices are going to be, and the more accessible cinema is to the masses which is you know it was the, it, it it was the art form of the masses and i think it still is it's just maybe the theatrical experience isn't for the masses anymore yeah. but i you know i've been reading about cinemas and the cinemas that i'm going to on this tour who run who've got um a slight in um enhancement on ticket prices in order to offer lower ticket prices for 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 other people and i just think things just getting people in and just making it cheap and affordable you know we got a screening up in newquay on monday night and the ticket and it's five quid all the tickets are five pounds yeah. to to get in and i just think things like that are so great in terms of getting the younger generations into the habit of going to the cinema and a habit based on the exhilaration of watching something on a huge screen communally and i i think you know the, the tarantino sort of 70 mil roadshow stuff i think that's great but it, it, it is almost like um it's a marketing thing isn't it yeah. you know the the yeah. tour the circus comes through town and i know when the hateful eight went to leicester square and then in glasgow was the print that was in london and i, th and I said what is the same print they said yeah of course it's a 70 mil print there's only one in europe so that can't that can't be a form of distribution if you've got one print yeah, <laughs> because by the time it goes around all the cinemas, you know, films can be thirty years old by the time every cinema's had it. But yeah. in terms of getting that publicity up and charging a premium price, and you get the booklet and all of this kind of stuff, and the people who can afford to do it or who can't afford to do it but are determined to do it because they're cineasts or or huge fans or whatever, I think that's great because that helps the word of mouth and it and it does kind of it does single cinema out as an art form that's very idiosyncratic which i think is one of its selling points it doesn't necessarily mean you then have to go and see it on on 70 millimeter but i mean when dunkirk came to cornwall i went i you know i, I didn't go to the local cinema i drove an hour to go to another cinema to see a 35 mil print in a screening that was sold out and... I, I did a similar i did a similar thing myself when um i was living in cambridge when paul thomas anderson's the master came out oh yeah uh, and I, I, it was like you know, it's like a forty-minute train ride to London. Or something. Yeah. So I popped, uh, popped on it and went to the the Odeon Leicester Square. It seems a bit overkill looking back, but I'm glad I did. Yeah, it, but you're so. but you're talking about it now, aren't you? I mean, if you'd gone, yeah, you know, would yeah. would this even be a story if you'd gone and, and to your local cinema and seen the DCP of it? And I think that's the thing mm. is that you know, life is about experience, and we're and and sometimes 
you know, traveling to do something or, or, or going that extra mile makes the whole experience very distinct. And I think that's, and, and going to the cinema has always been a, a, a special experience. I think, you know, I, I, we've got preview screening up in town in North Cornwall called Wade Bridge on Sunday. And that's where I grew up. That's the cinema that I went mm. to every weekend when I was growing up. It was like a second front room sort of thing, me and friends. And I still remember all the films I saw, you know, and so it, it's kind of emblazoned into my memory. So um, I think that the, the more we can preserve that, not for the sake of nostalgia, but for just the sake of that it's an amazing experience even now, then, then what, whatever way we can do that, I think we should be doing it. Megan Mitchell and Sean Welsh from Matchbox Cine Club. Thank you guys so much for being with us today. Thank you for having us. Cheers. So tell me a little bit about Matchbox Cine Club. How did it all begin? Uh, well, it was founded by neither of us, by a chap called Tommy McCormick, who was inspired by uh, cine nights that he'd been to in Iceland, uh, primarily short film nights. Um, at the time in Glasgow, he felt that there wasn't a presence for short films on the big screen. So he started doing short film programs, future shorts programs in the CCA. Um, and then after a minute, I was interested in getting into film programming, which is notoriously difficult to get into unless you already have a path. Um, and I got in touch with Tommy, who was a pal, and said, if you want to bring these nights back, I'd be up for helping out. So then we started doing things. We did some pop-ups and nice and sleazy in the old hairdressers. We did a cinema tent at doing the rabbit hole. Uh, and then we started a residency at uh, the old hairdressers, which was ran for about a year and a half uh, before we moved to CCA. And then we had residency here for a while. And then we started doing pop-up events more irregularly um, and segued into doing um, more weekend festivals like K-Jarama. Um, and yeah, that's pretty much what we've been up to. We do pop-ups in, in different venues. Um, we've done some stuff in Edinburgh before as well, further afield. Um, but mostly in terms of what the driving force is, it's films that you can't see elsewhere. That's the kind of the through line. So I think our uh, ethos of Matchbox boils down to the outcasts, outliers and orphans of cinema. Um, and I think we've expanded on that in the last couple of years with our slightly larger tentpole festivals. So Weird Weekends are a really good example of um, almost the pure part of our programming. So it is entirely films you can't see anywhere else. And then we've got our other two tentpole festivals, which are Kianicon and Kjarama. Um, which are obviously films that are more widely accessible, screened more often but we build around them in a way that it's an event that wouldn't take place otherwise. Um, we do like to keep it fun and we like to make sure that audiences that come to our events are getting something that they wouldn't get anywhere else. Um, so we're very keen on making sure it's a special event, making sure it's accessible. We've started um, using sliding scale ticket pricing for everything that we do. So you can um, purchase either a free ticket or increments all the way up to about £8. And that's based on your income and how comfortable you are. And that also means that people can come along if they can't afford a ticket or they can give a wee bit more if they can. And we've also um, recently uh, decided that we're going to caption all of our screenings for deaf audiences. Yeah, 
we try to, um, I think you, you said that we're, we try to have a sense of fun about it. We, 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 we try to figure out what the through line was through all our programming because obviously we started out with this kind of relatively strict idea of the films we screened you couldn't scre see other anywhere else. Uh, the films we screened you couldn't see anywhere else. But um, we realised we wanted to do things like cage Rama, which was a weekend festival of, of Nicolas Cage films. And we, that came from a place of love because primarily because we both love Nicolas Cage kind of unreservedly. And so um, it wasn't a really difficult thing for us to make that leap, like just instinctively to, to want to do it because no one else was doing a Nicolas Cage film festival. So, you know, there was that part. Um, the fact that this was an event that wouldn't happen unless we were doing it. But the other thing we came to realise was that we really are about cult audiences as much as we are about cult films. So it's actually not counterintuitive to be screening Con Air if we're screening it in a programme of Nicolas Cage films. Um, it nev never really gave us a pause to programme it like that anyway, but we realised after the fact that's really what we're doing is um, making these films available to audiences and also catering to these audiences that exist um, for cult figures. Yeah, um, so we're into our second year of K-Drama. We've just finished um, presenting K-Drama 3D, which was um, a double bill of two 3D films with Edinburgh International Film Festival. And we'll be back again in January for K-Drama 3 in 2020. Um, and we'd started doing Cage Arama, as Sean was saying, quite organically from our um, own passions. I am the world's leading um, academic in uh, the Nicholas Cage film Valley Girl, 1982. So that came from a piece of place of love. And then I think we started to look at these um, cult audiences, this idea of cult actors, and Keanu came um, from that. And then we'd actually sold out Keanucon quite um, well we had to move it because of the art school fire in Glasgow and the CCA venue was shut so we pushed it back a bit and then about a week before we delivered the festival it went viral and um, we had people from all over the world covering us um, we got a mention in Vice, AV Club, New York Times was talking about us, 24 hour Nigeria um, all over the world and we had people and audiences reach out as well really interested in that so for that us that was really fun but then it was also then the same week having to deliver that festival to an audience that doesn't care that we went viral they just want a good event yeah. um and i think for us that was more fun because it was just the exact same thing we always do it's just more people were talking about it i think we realized through that that um because obviously there's a there's a, a train of thought that says if you can have this huge viral uh, coverage and people automatically were asking us when we were bringing it to the States and we didn't really think of it that way but immediately people were telling us it was the first ever Keanu Reeves film festival um, and like the, the stateside outlets were saying that so that was kind of a surprise um, but then people were automatically asking us to bring it over there to do a repeat and to do it bigger and I think through that, just through the, the kind of coverage and how we had to deal with that, we kind of realised that what we want to do is we, we might lose some kind of essential part of the way that we present and deliver these festivals by having it even in you know a 700-seater cinema. So I think what we'd, what we'd like to do is to keep our um, events accessible 
uh, at a certain level and do more of them. You know, maybe I guess it's slightly. I mean, it's not to say we'll ever kind of repeat the kind of the the wild reaction to Kianicon. I think that's probably unlikely. Kianicon twenty twenty is already on sale, um, <laughs> but um, even even if so, I think well, it's equivalent of a you know a touring band playing several nights in a smaller venue as opposed to a bigger venue. Uh, that's we we would prefer to have that kind of interaction with the audience. And I think also there's there's people that come to our events that would be um, that would be less comfortable coming to a bigger a bigger event, and that's kind of we wouldn't want to lose that. So um, yeah, it's, that's been a learning curve as well. It's obviously been great to get the positivity, but we also again just accidentally kind of cottoned onto this worldwide wave of piano love. He is the internet's boyfriend, and we were just a tiny aspect of that. This uh, weird weekend coming up. Tell me a little bit about that. Okay, so as as Megan was saying, that's kind of returning to our kind of core programming of films that are hard to see. Um, and so w- we did this last year for the first time. It was in June last year, I think. Um, I know that it was June because it was roasting and the, everyone in the screen was melting. Um, so basically, the ethos here is we try to find find films that are underscreened or are lost or have brand new restorations and in some cases are like premieres so um it's um a, a mixed a real mixed uh, real eclectic program and this year we made a real effort to uh, make sure it was um 50 50 f rated um and at the same time this is the first time that one of our, i think this is the first time one of our festivals is going to be completely captioned um open captioned for the deaf and hard of hearing um as well as the first time we've had sliding scale tickets for each of the individual events. We try to keep our tickets reasonable anyway, and the weekend passes are still available. Uh, they're not on a sliding scale, but we try to keep them as cheap as possible. So, um, yeah, so the programme itself is uh, probably the best-known film is The Burbs, mm-hmm. the Joe Dante's The Burbs, um, which even so is one of Joe Dante's more... Uh, the cultier end of Joe Dante's... Um, filmography. Uh, we're lucky enough to have Joe agree to uh, join us via Skype for a mm-hmm. Q&A after the, after the screening and we're also going to be screening the work print of the Burbs just to make it more um, more obscure um, and more smart arse. <laughs> so um, but we're, what we're going to do is we're going to screen in one room we're going to have the work print and in another room simultaneously we're going to have the the recent uh, Turkey restoration, so mm-hmm. you're going to be able to see both versions. Um, so that's the most mainstream event, and then we have a whole variety of things from uh, AGFA, the American Genre Film Archives, recent uh, Turkey preservations of Sarah Jacobson's films. Um, she was a filmmaker um, just at the end of the 90s um, who sadly uh, died very young. Um, but she made uh, a couple of, or a handful of films, but really just the one feature, Mary Jane's Not a Virgin Anymore, uh, and a really distinctive short called um, I Was a Teenage Serial Killer. So we're going to show those back to back, like I say, in these new 2K preservations, so they're dead shiny. Um, as shiny as they're ever going to be because they're like 16 millimeter and like deliberately um, uh, punky and, and kind of aesthetic. So that's going to be cracking. Um, I just use the word cracking. Should you take over so that I don't do that again? Um, well, I think probably the title that we're most excited to be able to screen is Nothing Lasts Forever, which is a lost um, Bill Murray film. So it has never been theatrically 
released. Um, it probably never will be. The only way you can see it is on 35mm um, in an archive print. So we've got the archive print coming to us. And we'll be screening that on Friday night. So that's, um, that's something that's really special. And I think that we're really pleased to be able to present something in Glasgow that wouldn't be screened at all otherwise. Yeah, I guess I should say that the real, the real, one of the real driving forces for Weird Weekend was to give us a way to screen these films that people hadn't seen before, because it's a really tricky thing. I'm sure anyone that's ever tried to put on a film, uh, to screen a film um, that people haven't seen before will understand it's it's tough because, you know, y you have to tell the audience what it is. And so, th you know, cult films are, are, are necessarily, um, have a niche audience, and so it's exponentially more difficult to get people to see a cult film that they've never heard of. So this was a way to answer that, was to do a festival of it. And at the same time, we really felt that um, Scotland, uh, although it has a number of amazing genre film festivals, including Dead by Dawn and Fright Fest when they do their Glasgow leg, um, they're more horror-focused, and we really wanted to see something like uh, Fantastic Fest or Fantasia in Canada, um, and, and these festivals that are screening these more uh, general cult films, like um, whether it's sci-fi um, or just weird drama or you know comedy, just whatever it is, it's got that angle of oddness to it. And so that's really what we were what we were aiming to do with this, and we'd like to keep on building and make it more um, of a regular kind of you know tentpole landmark event, and and hopefully at some point it will be. The ambition is to have Scotland's fantastic fest. Oh, great. Uh, uh, Scalarama, something I know a little bit about, um, but why don't you sh uh, tell us a little bit about Scalarama, what it's about, how it all began, and uh, your involvement. Sure, okay, well, Sca the Scalarama uh, cinema, which is the inspiration, was a kind of legendary uh, rep cinema in London. Um, it had a number of different iterations, but the, the kind of the golden era or the last golden era, and really the one that we kind of hark back to was in the kind of uh, 80s and early 90s. And they had a really eclectic program where they would screen um, high art films um, and absolute trash, and quite often on the same bill. And so it's the legacy of rebel uh, film, uh, film programming, rebel film programming, and um, the eclectic um, lineup that really feeds into Scalarama. So Scalarama was born out of a season. Um, which was a tribute to the Scala. Um, a couple of guys called Michael Pierce and Phil Foxwood um, did a season called Scala Forever um, in London, which was just which was in lots of different venues and in a similar fashion to Scalarama now, because of course it's a season of films um, that uh, takes place across the whole of the UK. Um, so this was just in London, and they had a number of different cinemas and exhibitors, film nights and things doing. Uh, films that kind of paid tribute to the, the explicit programming of the Scala. Um, the next year, um, some people, um, I believe it was Certificate X Film Club in Manchester, uh, wanted or asked if they would take it on tour. Um, and Michael and Phil's response was that was anti the spirit of the thing and really they should do it themselves. And so, um, <laughs> I'm just saying it, well, that sounds kind of rude. Uh, but it was really positive and basically they said... Um, you know, you can make it your own, and that's really how they've went ever since. And so it's expanded year on year. It became Scalarama the year after that. It was Scala Forever, Scala Beyond, and then Scalarama. Um, and then it's kind of gradually um, 
creaked its way across the UK and become bigger and bigger ever since. Um, there's 70, uh, over 70 events across Glasgow, Edinburgh, um, the Highlands and Islands. Um, those are the broad areas, Glasgow and West, Edinburgh and East, um, Highlands and Islands. And, but we have activity taking place in West Lothian and Berwick, which is technically over the border, but they have a big audience in Scotland, um, uh, as well as being awesome. So it's kind of worth bending the rules for them. Um, and and all around, really, I'm not sure if I'm forgetting anything, in Presswick, which is where I'm from, they've got our first event in Presswick this year. Um, and so it's a really, really big and diverse programme, um, diverse in terms of the films, as well as the exhibitors themselves, because um, Scalarama is, um, it's kind of, it's a network as well as a season of films, as well as in some sense, just a film festival, um, but it's becoming more and more like dark matter that just exists everywhere, you know, and so we can absorb whole film festivals into the programme. So that's why you'll have Berwick uh, Film and Arts um, Festival. And we'll have, we used to have Squiff, but Squiff moved their dates because really um, the only caveat for Scalarama is that it takes place in September. Uh, secondary one is, I guess, that it's film related. <laughs> um, so we can absorb whole film festivals into the programme um, and as well as people that are doing things year round in terms of like Matchbox or um, specialist cinemas or, um, you know, people that just want to do a standalone one-off event just because they have a passion project. Yeah, so we've got um, a co-presentation with uh, Queer Classics, who's another independent exhibitor in Glasgow. So we're showing Seahorse, which is Jeannie Finley's um, brand new documentary about um, this trans dad, Freddie, um, through his pregnancy and birth. So it's this really touching, intimate um, portrayal of parenthood and self-identity and how they interact. We are then, the very next day, um, curating a programme of short experimental films from Japan from the 70s and 80s. Uh, called Kaleidoscopic Realms, so that's the first in the season um, looking at experimental Japanese cinema from that period that we'll be doing. And then we're also presenting with the brand new film club uh, Diet Soda Cine Club, um, the Teen Apocalypse trilogy from Gregor Ake as well. Yeah, really looking forward to that one. That's um, Diet Soda Cine Club. Is the really cool thing about, about Scalarama is the number of times that um, people start film clubs um, and little platforms for screen films for Scalarama and then continue doing it um, or people that do that bring dormant things back and then it kind of is a good spark for them to keep doing it and so Diet Soda Cine Club is one of those but it's kind of um, it, it has one foot Sarah Nisbet who, who was a Scalarama coordinator uh, in Edinburgh last year and also runs Real Girl Film Club um, is uh, branching out with this kind of different sphere of programming, and so we're really, really proud to be able to like collaborate with with Sarah on on this this project. So um, now it's going to be brilliant to screen those three films back to back. I think, the fun yeah, it's a funny thing because it is it is it's been really important for us for Matchbox and and Scalarama has been a good vessel for that. Is to is to help people keep doing it because it's a really if you're doing it properly, it's really easy. I think to and you know I'll reserve comment on like people that are screening films about licenses because it's really easy to just rock up and screen a film with like a DVD 
Um, and sometimes people are naive about that and sometimes people are just doing it because they wouldn't be able to do it otherwise. Um, but if, you, if you're going to do it with a license, as, as obviously, you know, technically you need to, um, it's hard because, you know, that costs, the venue often costs money and it costs you money to market it. Um, so it's really easy to lose a lot of money, like, you know, and, and then obviously, unless you're independently wealthy, um, God bless you, um, yeah, it's really hard to keep going if you're going to keep losing money. So one of the things we've been really, it's been really important to us is to try and pass on any help we can give to people to keep on doing stuff. And that really is one reason why, you know, we want to keep going is to, is, is for that reason, that's really rewarding. And... Yeah, and I think as well, it's easy to forget that programming is a creative endeavour in itself. And I think that um, there's some things that you stumble across in your programming and you think, actually, I really want to show this to other people. And programming is just an extension of that. Like, look, see, this is like so good. Look at it. Um, I think for myself, it's also like slightly out of spite. Like for 10 years I've been programming films and existing in the film industry and I don't think I'll ever stop entirely driven by spite. Yeah, we're just too stubborn and spiteful. (laughs) (laughs) We just enjoy, like the thing about screening films is for me is like we get to show films to people which is great fun. We get to make posters which is fun. Sometimes we get to cut trailers, we get to do research which is fun and rewarding. It's, It's actually really amazing when you finally find a license holder or you finally get permission or you get in touch with a director or uh, an actor or a producer or anyone that you admire or that's an interesting person you get to chat to them about things and then you know it's also just really rewarding to be able to screen films that are like like the way that we chose to approach it and, and show films that are hard to see otherwise we can show films that um are really the best quality possible. That's part of what the work we do behind the scenes is like, which is maybe invisible again, is like, we don't stop at finding a DVD. We try to find the best digital version, you know, the best that we can screen. You know, if we can screen from a DCP, we will. Um, 35 millimeter if, if, we, if we can. Um, and all of that is really rewarding. I think it's all a kind of a creative endeavor in, in itself. Um, and so, yeah, as long as we can keep feeding the cat, that's, I mean, I really can't stress that enough. He is a hungry cat. <laughs> He's a chunky boy. Well, thank you so much for being with us. And uh, I'm looking forward to a weird weekend and um, Scalarama. Thank you for having us. Thanks for having us. So in September, once again, Edinburgh Scalarama will be returning to uh, screen a range of programmes and films across the city. And as part of that, we'll be doing a series of interviews, short interviews with some of the programmers from this year's event. So the first interview is with uh, Serena Scatena, who's uh, with us today. Hello, Serena. How are you? Hi, I'm good. Thank you for having me. So can you tell us a little bit about the film you're screening? It's Inland Sea, isn't it? Uh, yeah. A Japanese documentary. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's part of the cine- regular Cinetopia Doc Club, uh, which will be forming part of the, S- the Scalarama event this year. And you've programmed Inland Sea. So tell us a little bit about the film. Um, so as far as the film, I n- wanted to catch it like uh, 2018 Berlinale, but I couldn't really manage, and I was so sad about it. But oh after right. a while, <laughs> yeah, after a while, um, the streaming service movie decided to offer like a retrospective on Kazuhiro Soda, which is the director of the film. And then um, so I could finally watch it. And obviously, I mean, I was so intrigued by the film. It's like an, um, 
an amazing kind of observational documentary because I mean it's how you call the uh, documentary of this film director like observational documentaries because basically what it does is like rolling the camera and then like observing everything and everyone that was happening around him and that's it so, so um, it's like a fixed camera point is it and um then yeah, you just I mean, he doesn't happens. have any script, anything mm. at all, doesn't have any theme. So we're basically following like a kind of set rules. You have these set um, 10 rules, like 10 commandments or something like that. And then so uh, it just, um, you know, roll the camera and everything happens. You observe and that's the film. So um, to just yeah telling a tiny bit of this of the plot of the film uh he was doing like another documentary in this like fishing village in japan which is called ushimado and then when when he was here um he wanted to uh you know to film like the um oyster factories and the fishermen in the village and then after a while he met this old fisherman called uh, waichan who is like uh, 86 years old and is basically uh, the last living fisherman in this village in Japan. And then after a while, another person came into the frame. And then so, uh, I mean, it, it's just kept, it just kept, you know, filming stuff and people. And then in the end, uh, when he shot everything, he realized he had like so many stuff, not only for the first film, uh, which came out like uh, almost 10 years before Illinsi and which is called like Oyster Factory. Then, yeah, I realized he had like so much uh, frame and stuff because basically I uh, came out with another film altogether. And so that's how Illinsi basically uh, was born. And so what, what was it about the film that really made you want to, to screen this to audiences in Edinburgh? Well, um, apart of being like um, a really uh, kind of a sentimental and melancholic documentary in terms of the uh, fishing village is kind of a, a dying place in Japan because of, uh, there are so many like old people and there's pretty much no youngers and um, so uh, you can have like these um, a glimpse of what it means to live like in rural Japanese countryside. But apart from that, I think it was something because the, um, the film is set in a fishing village on the coast. It kind of reminds me of like some of the, uh, of the kind of the villages you can see on the, on the coast in Scotland. So I thought, I mean, um, fish and like this kind of industry could be something that could appeal to people living here. I mm -hmm. mean, there's also like the shore in, in Edinburgh. So there's this deep connection between like the city and the sea. Mm -hmm. And so I thought it w could be something that could, you know, struck a chord with like people living in Edinburgh as well. Yeah, well, that's that's true, I suppose. And uh, tell, I, tell, I think that um, within Land Sea, this is your first feature programming event. Is yeah. It? yeah. Okay, so we'll, we'll obviously wish we good luck about that. So where, where, <laughs> is the, where is the event taking place? So the event is taking place at the Edinburgh Film Guild on September the 2nd at 7 o'clock. Okay, and how much are the tickets? Uh, seven, five pounds. Okay, where can, where can people find out a bit more about the, the programme and, and the festival in general? Yeah. Is there um, a website? Uh, oh, yeah, I mean, is there the... Uh, it's uh, like the event on Facebook, so you can just uh, head over to the uh, the Cinetopia Facebook page and find out everything about the event or the uh, the program of Scalarama. Just check out the Scalarama website. Great. Okay. Well, um, thanks for that. Thanks for coming along, and I uh, wish you. you obviously all the best with your your film screening. Thanks. Um, yeah, and we'll uh, look forward to to watching Inland Sea later this uh, next month. Sure. <laughs>
next in our series of interviews with the programmers of this year's Scamorama Edinburgh. Um, we're delighted to welcome to the studio and none other than Andy Dannett. Andy, welcome. Hiya, how's it going? Not bad, yourself? Uh, good, grand. Good, good, glad to hear it. So tell us, you're showing uh, two films, two feature films, um, Electro Moscow and Young Soul Rebels. So uh, what was the thinking behind programming these two films? Tell us a little bit about them. So... Um, so that it was just really like hearing about Scalarama and, and the opportunity that they were like, uh, you know, for new programmers, uh, young programmers. Mm -hmm. This kind of idea of just getting people up on their feet and getting them into the idea of like film programming and exhibition was really exciting. And the, the, for me, I mean, I've got like, here we are in HFM, you know, there's a, a lot of uh, like a heritage and culture surrounding like club and music culture, which is my background's from. So I had this wonderful opportunity to be screening at uh, Sneaky Pete. So immediately there was this kind of, uh, I guess, uh, how would I say it, uh, kind of uh, direction or like path that kind of led me on to like the idea of just doing music films or uh, like cinema that's revolved mm -hmm. around uh, the culture. You, you're also a DJ, aren't you? That's yes, right. yes, so I am. That's, so it's a good link with Electro Moscow. Exactly. So exactly, Electro Moscow being about electronic Soviet music post-war till today. Wow. Okay. And then was that legal? Um, so, uh, uh, well, well, part of it is uh, a lot of it's done like clandestine. A lot of these guys mm. that they're interviewed, you know, they're very much like hidden away. And then as, as the story goes on, you kind of see people that are still very much part of an underground, but mm. maybe a bit more legal. But mm. uh, yeah, I mean, you know, the, there's the Theremin's covered in it, Leon Theremin and whatnot. Oh. So you're really kind of seeing this okay. huge kind of like a uh, vivid painting of, uh, you know, like how much Soviet music, uh, yeah. synth music at least, inspired and influenced uh, the world over, you know? So that sounds fantastic. You're also screening uh, Young Soul Rebels, different kind of music. And that's, all, that's a feature film, isn't it? Yeah, that's a feature film. So they're, they're both... So the first one is going to be Young Soul Rebels on the 14th of September, and on the 20th of September, it's going to be Electro Moscow. Okay. And chose to do one documentary and one uh, fiction feature length. And Young Soul Rebels, you said, different story altogether. 70s London, new wave, reggae pop and uh, just kind of sound system culture and it's by the director Isaac Julian. Mm -hmm. uh, don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. Isaac <laughs> Julian, Isaac Julian. Doing a good job. <laughs> we'll be all right with it. But he's just finished having uh, a huge exhibition down in London and uh, just been a big fan of his work, like particularly looking for Langston. And th this movie in particular, I was like, oh, this is this is the movie I want to see in a nightclub because mm. um, I think there's there's many of us in here that um, you know we've watched enough films about DJs and DJ culture, mm -hmm. and you know we've been watching it like behind our eyes or hands and heads, just how absolutely cringe it is. And I think this is <laughs> the only honest portrayal that we've had of uh, proper DJ culture. And so I'm really, really glad to be sharing it in Sneaky Pete's. So, so both the films are screened uh, in Sneaky Pete's. Yeah, yeah, right yeah. And um, so, what are the dates again? So the 14th of September and the 20th of September. And how much are the tickets? Seven pounds. Seven pounds. Great. That sounds fantastic, Andy. Now, if somebody wanted to find out a bit more about the screening, where could they go? They could follow me on Instagram uh, on Cucumber Lodge, which is the name that will be running the the events and series under, which comes from the just uh, a lot of social gatherings, uh, personal ones, and then what we want to be doing really with this kind of like so social, uh, the social events as Cucumber Lodge is mm -hmm. be taking it to the next level in terms of music, in ter terms of cinema. So I think like what's fantastic is Scalarama like definitely provides that platform for us. Yeah, that's great. Well, we'll very much look forward to, to seeing those films. Good luck with the screening. And uh, well, we'll see you there. Yeah, see you. See you there. Thanks very much for having me. And uh, again, 14th and 20th of September for Young Soul Rebels and Electro Moscow. Thanks very much, guys.
And we just made a little uh, um, correction to that, that uh, Young Soul Rebels is on the 15th, not the 14th. So we're joined today in the studio by uh, Ruby Han, who is responsible for the Out at the, Ca- Out at the Cameo screenings of LGBT films, which is monthly at the Cameo, is that right, Ruby? Uh, yeah, so um, not solely responsible. We are a... Oh, are you <laughs> <not>? <laughs> Um, can't take all the credit. We are a group of young programmers at the Cameo, and yeah, we screen uh, monthly LGBT films. That's everything from films with LGBT content to sort of campy cult classics like Barbarella. Um, yeah, but we do that once a month. Great, that sounds fantastic. So you're getting involved in uh, this year's Scalorama program, and what is it you're putting on for for the uh, Edinburgh audiences? Uh, so we're going to be screening My Beautiful Laundrette. My beautiful Andre. Now, um, can you tell us a bit about the film about why you want to screen it? Okay, well, um, uh, one of the reasons we chose My Beautiful Andre is because, um, despite being over 30 years old, um, the issues that it discusses, immigration and British identity and uh, the far right, are unfortunately all still in the news. Um, so I think it remains really relevant mm-hmm. despite having come out in uh, 1985. And uh, it's nice to be screening it in Edinburgh because Edinburgh was partly responsible for its success. Um, it got its first mainstream cinema release because it did so well at the Edinburgh Film Festival. So I think it's nice to nice to have it on in Edinburgh. Yeah, it's, it's like it's coming home, really. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> so uh, yeah. So and when when is the film on? So the film's on Thursday, twelfth at six pm. And what's the venue? Uh, Cameo Cinema. Cameo, yeah, of course, right. That sounds fantastic. So, um, so we're looking forward to that. Now, uh, a bit about out the Cameo. How long has that been running, and and what's the what's the plans for for the the group going forward? Um, so we've been running since summer last year, I believe. Our first screening was last September, so we're coming up to our year anniversary, which is really exciting. Um, at the moment, we're just looking for more people to join us, because. Um, while we get a lot of help from Cameo in terms of actually putting on the screening, we organise everything ourselves, um, and we're just looking for more people to join us to to share the workload. It's it's really good fun. It's a great way to meet other LGBT young people in Edinburgh, and cinema fans that you can uh, nerd out with. Um, <laughs> but yeah, we're we're looking for new people to join us. Um, so if you're interested after hearing this, please do find us on social media. Great, it sounds fantastic. Now, um, good luck with the screening of My Beautiful Laundrette. Uh, when was that again? It was the... Uh, the 12th, or Thursday 12th at 6pm. At 6pm, yeah, great, at the Cameo. Okay, well, thanks for coming along, Ruby, and uh, we'll look forward to the screening, and we wish you all the best with it. Thank you very much. Well, that's about it for August at Cinetopia. Thank you to Sean and Megan, Serena, Andy and Ruby, and Mark for your interviews, as well as Luca, Jim and An- Amanda for your thoughts on, on this month's feature films. For more events on the events across Scalarama in September in Edinburgh and beyond, check out the website scalarama.com. Cinetopia Radio Show is hosted and produced by myself, Paul Bruce, Amanda Rogers, Annie Asakainanen and Jim Ross. For more information about Cinetopia, please go to cinetopiahub.com or follow us on social media at Cinetopia Hub. Thanks and see you next month.